So we get up to the target that Bradley maneuvered into position, and there's like this tank round just flies out of nowhere. And then you start to hear like tink, 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 and the ramp goes down. And we peel out, and I've ran towards the target building. And as I like clear all the stuff, there's smoke and stuff, and I just get this weird feeling like not everybody's with me. So I kind of like take a knee. And I'm like waiting. Nobody's running by me. And I'm realizing you hear like snap, snap, snap. And then all of a sudden, like I get the squeeze and it's Mark behind me. So we go up to the front door. So I ran up, kicked it open and it propels me past the first two rooms. I'm like on my gun the whole time. And I just give the going upstairs. And as me and Chucky get to the top of the stairs, this machine gun fire just comes in, dude. And it comes in heavy. You could tell it was really close. And all of a sudden you hear man down, like dire man down. And then he goes, we need to form it down here now. So I just, it's like three bounds down the stairs and I get down to the stairwell. As we're coming down, I go to grab Mark and another bunch of machine gun fire comes down through there. So I kind of like duck out of the way and Mark is, dude, he's down. And Nick, our EOD guys, returning fire. I catch Nick's eye. It looked like sheer terror, um, the look that he gave me. So grab Mark and I drug him around that little alcove. And I just start cutting Mark's gear off. Um, you know, it was pretty apparent that he took one round right to the teeth. I could see the whole left side was, um, was already bruising. You could see it all on his cheek. Um, his face was like white and Mark was tan. I get the gear off and dude, I'm just doing like a quick assessment. And dude, there's nothing, man. I was like, we need a Kazovac now. So like, all right, it's outside. So I go and I sling Mark up on there and I start carrying him, dude. And it... It's heavy, you know what I mean? Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. Have a very special guest on with me today, Ephraim Matos. Uh, Ephraim has been busy the last couple of years doing really interesting work overseas, and we're going to touch on all that. Ephraim is also a former U.S. Navy SEAL. Uh, Ephraim, how's it going, brother? Hey, it's going good, man. Thanks for having me on. So we got a lot going on as far as what you've been up to, what you're working on, and things you have coming out in the future. We're going to touch on everything. Um, before we get into the the now, can we talk about kind of your beginnings in the military and um, specifically joining the Navy and, and your career uh, in the Navy up to now? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you could call it a uh, a career. <laughs> I did my I did the minimum um, amount of time in uh, in the Navy. Um, I joined up when I was 18, went through buds, did all that, and um, I spent about four years at a SEAL team, a West Coast SEAL team, deployed twice. And during that time, I I kind of realized that it wasn't a good fit for me long term. I mean, I'm glad I did it. Don't get me wrong. Um, I always say the uh, best decision I ever did. The best decision I ever made was to join the teams. The second best decision I ever made was to was to get out. Um, but yeah, I, I had a great time. A lot of a lot of really good friends. A lot of really uh, really, really cool experiences. Yeah. So now you you've done your time in the Navy in the SEAL teams. Did you immediately head overseas once you got out, or was there a gap in between those those two events? Yeah, uh, actually, the two overlapped. I was still technically. Um, active duty when I went overseas. I took terminal leave and I flew overseas to Iraq because I wanted to do some humanitarian work. That was kind of, um, I, I figured, I figured I could use my, my, my military training and skills 
in, in a war zone to kind of get into places and help uh, people in, in a humanitarian sense that other people couldn't necessarily help. And so, yeah, I actually, I left the Navy two months early, put in leave, uh, and flew over, flew overseas to Iraq. And when I was there, I met up with a group of guys called the Free Burma Rangers. And what I, for about a month, we did mostly humanitarian stuff. But the Iraqi army unit that we were attached to um, was ordered to assault and participate on the direct assault into West Mosul. And at the time, West Mosul was um, completely controlled by ISIS, and ISIS had been pushed out of East Mosul and, and Southwestern Mosul. And so basically everybody, all these ISIS fighters had been um, congregating into West Mosul and sort of to break this, to break this stalemate where with an armored uh, Iraqi armor division, the, the, um, that Iraqi armor division was ordered to go and just hit ISIS head on. And we were there on the front lines the, the entire time during that entire assault, uh, as, working as medics. So we kind of went from just humanitarians to medics. And we obviously carried guns and all that. Um, but, yeah, it, it ended up just being this insane um, thing that I was not expecting. So there was no overlap. I literally left the teams, was still technically on on leave and flew to Iraq. And then all this stuff happened. And um, this is when the big push was being made to get ISIS out of Iraq. Uh, what, what year was this? This was like 2016 or something or 2017? No, this was, this was 2017. 2017. Yeah, this was June. Yeah, this is, uh, the, the assaults on West Mosul by the Iraqi army's ninth armor division happened May 4th, 2017. We were there for that. And I ended up being there until June 2nd when I got injured and got pulled out of there. So when you got, injured um there was like a viral video of an individual i believe he was an american a part of the free burma rangers if i'm not mistaken um and i think he was a former green beret is that right is that correct yes that 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 video that went viral um was of it was three guys it was sky barkley uh myself and then david eubank who is the founder and the leader of free burma rangers right um uh, he was former SF, a former SF officer, and he was also in the Ranger Battalion or one of the Ranger Battalions. Um, and Sky was a former Marine who had been in Fallujah sort of after the, the big kick had happened in Fallujah. He was there um, as well. So, yeah, all, all three of us were former were former military that were in that video. And, yeah, that, that whole thing was just insane. We weren't expecting you know, and there to be any kind of publicity off of that. We honestly, we thought we thought we were all going to die that day. We were talking about it before we rolled out. We we're like, oh, well, here we go. It's a good day to die <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah, I remember um, seeing the video. And, and I think what what made it kind of go viral, what gave it that push was basically, um, uh, I, I think you guys were like behind a tank taking cover. And mm -hmm. there was like a little girl out in the open. And I forget which one one of you guys ran over to get her kind of under fire and brought her back to cover. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what had happened was that morning we were, again, embedded with the Iraqi army doing mostly medical stuff and humanitarian things. Our, our job, and to be clear, we were not, our job was not as frontline combatants. We were more like frontline combat medics. And when we got up to the sort of the, the front, the, the forward line of troops, in Mosul on that day, we saw this this huge what what had been a highway. It was like a you know four or five lane highway, which was just completely 
demolished and just shot to pieces and cratered and there was you know debris everywhere and we started seeing bodies strewn out everywhere and we didn't smell them which meant that it was a fresh killing and we got up into some of the buildings and into some of the rubble and we started looking out over this what we discovered was a killing field and there were dude you know i've i saw some stuff when i was in the navy um in afghanistan i dude i've never seen anything like this it was it was it it made me think of you know the the killing fields of the Khmer rouge or Mm. Um, you know, pictures you see of, uh, you know, like Nazis and, and the aftermath of, ma- of, of, of their massacres and the piles of dead bodies and stuff like that. That's exactly what we saw. We were the first people on scene. And so we looked out over this highway and man, there were dozens, dozens of, of people just dead everywhere, just littering the ground everywhere. And I'm not talking like, you know, military age males or, you know, soldiers or anything like that, dude, I'm talking old people, women, kids, you know, like little 12 year old girls shot in the back of the head. Um, I saw a baby whose, whose head had been caved in because the father had shot it or or the the father had been shot while carrying the baby. The baby had fallen to the ground and had cracked its head open and had caved its, you know, its head in. And this was literally eight or nine feet from the, from the wall where they would have been safe. And it was just, it was insane. I'd never, I'd never seen anything like that. And so when we looked out over this, this large, what used to be a highway, um, we started seeing piles of people like just piled on top of each other. And there was one particular wall where we noticed maybe 15 or 20 bodies just all twisted and shot up next to each other. And we started seeing movement in the bodies. And we saw four kids alive, like in this pile of bodies. And we couldn't stick our head out or go get them because they were, you know, maybe 200 yards from this four or five story building, which was a hospital that ISIS had occupied. And so we couldn't do anything to go get them. And so we were screaming at them to, to come to us, but they were, you know, they're completely shell shocked. They're completely past beyond reason. You know, they're in shock. They're, they were going from, from body to body, looking for water, looking for food. I remember I looked at, I looked at one, one little boy, he, there, there were, there's a little boy and a girl next to each other. And the little boy walked around from body to body and he got some food and, and, and water or something. He was getting something from the dead bodies. And then he sat down next to this little girl who's probably his sister. I don't know, but they're about the same age, maybe seven or eight. And the little girl laid back and keep in mind we're this is Mosul and, uh, you know, Mosul in, in June. So it's hot. And this, this little girl, this little girl lays down and this little boy, he takes a, he takes a blanket and lays it over her and then lays down next to her. And then they never got up. We never saw them get up ever again. And we saw two other kids alive in the bodies as well as two adult men. And it took us, we saw it in the morning by time we were able to get the Iraqis to agree to give us a tank. And, uh, David Eubank called the American commanders in the area, they, they put a drone overhead because um, we were like, hey, dude, we've got like 150 bodies out here in the street. This is clearly, you know, you guys, the, the Americans clearly needed to know about that. So they sent some some drones overhead. And when they got eyes on, they realized, oh, my goodness, this is in, insane. And so they agreed to drop a um, a smoke screen um, for for and for a rescue was, was a this mission. part on video with the smoke screen? I think I feel like I've seen this before. 
There was um, in, in in several of the videos. There are you you can see the smoke screen. There was actually a video that Ranger Up had put out um, on their Facebook page, and it was sort of the, the there was Mister Rogers music playing in the background, mm. and there were these um, you know white phosphorus rounds coming in from an angle and sort of exploding in the air. And there was this video that they had put up. And that was that was the airstrikes. Those that was the artillery strikes coming in from the um, from the Americans. That was that was the rescue that we were that we were doing. And that video came directly from ISIS, from from where the ISIS guys were. That 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 video was from actually from from ISIS from oh, their, their point of view. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, which is very which is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So I don't I don't know if the Ranger Up guys re, uh, realize that, but um, yeah, they have like. An actual ISIS video, and I talked to several of my guys in Iraq, guys that are friends of mine in Iraq, um, guys who still live there, uh, locals, and they were they were they were looking at it, and they were like, "Oh yeah, that's that's from the that's from the ISIS news channel." Wow. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there is video of that out there. Um, yeah, so so the the Americans dropped a smokescreen for us, and the Iraqis agreed to give us one tank. Now that's obviously a terrible strategy. Uh, we were um, that's not nearly enough cover, right? Cause they had us on the flank. They had right. us from front and, and from the flank. And so the only way that any of us survived was because of that smoke screen. Like they were shooting through it and bullets were pinging off the side of that tank. And they actually, none of this stuff was caught on video, but they started mortaring us as well. Um, um, actually in one of the video clips, you can see me turn around and I yell mortar and I point right as David Eubank and Sky Barkley go to get two more, uh, two more people. And yeah, so it was, it was, it was complete insanity. The only reason we're alive is because of that smoke screen. But so the, the Iraqis drove that, that, that tank right down the middle of this highway shooting the main gun. Um, none of us had any ear protection on. So it was just constant ringing in your ears and bullets slapping the ground around you. It was, I, I would never, I would never want to say, Oh, I know what it's like to, you know, to hit the beaches on Normandy. Cause you know, I, nothing compares to that. But I, I assume it was a, a similar feeling because we were just charging these ISIS machine gun nests behind a tank and they were mortaring us and hitting us from three different directions with machine gun fire. And the the sad part is by the time we got out there, three of the four kids had died and were no longer moving and we could only go get the one girl. And the only reason she survived is because she was hiding under a, a hijab from one of the dead women. We assume it was her mother, but we don't know. Um, and so that video that went viral was of us behind the tank and then Sky Barkley and I, we jumped out and started shooting at the ISIS positions, which were right there, man. They were right, they were right there, maybe 150 yards off, if not closer. They're right there. It was basically point blank range. And, um, David ran out, David Eubank ran out and grabbed the little girl and brought her back. And a funny thing is you can't see it on the video. Um, you can kind of see some dust kick up. As soon as David grabbed her, he turned around and he just fell flat on his face while still holding the girl. Mm. And I thought for sure he'd been shot because, you know, David's not clumsy or anything like that. And so um, I, we, we talked about it later and he's, he's like, dude, I don't know for sure. He's like, I may have just tripped, but I think, I think that my, you know, I think my leg may have gotten shot out from under me or something like that. Cause he was like, he, he doesn't trip and fall like that. He's not a clumsy guy. So whatever rock or piece of debris he had stepped on, there's a very high chance that it actually got shot out from under his feet. Um, but we don't know that. We just, you know, just kind of 
thinking about it. But anyway, yeah, he he. This gets was back. where you got shot, like right around this point as well, right? Yes. Yeah. So I got, I got shot about two minutes later, or maybe three or four minutes later. So David gets back behind the tank with us, and that's the that's the that's the end sort of the end of the viral video. You kind of see me turn, and I'm like, Hey, Dave, you all right? What's up? You all right? Because I thought I thought maybe he was shot. That's why I was asking him that. And so then there's more video footage that you know of of, the, of that rescue where you know, a minute or two later, all three of us ran out with no covering fire to, to get two adult men who were there. And we pulled the, we pulled the two adult men back. David grabbed a little girl. Um, there was an, a Syrian interpreter, um, who like, who goes by the name of Destan. That's not his real name, but it's a, sort of his cover name He's a Syrian guy. And he was out there with us and he, um, he and I, threw one of the men onto a, um, a, basically a tabletop that we found out there in the middle of the street, which I don't know how we even found that. Anyway, we threw the guy on there cause I couldn't pick him up and throw him over me because he was too badly wounded. And I would have basically like ripped his arm off trying to get him up in hindsight. I should have just ripped his arm off and got him up. But as we started moving back, this tank just started backing up and we couldn't communicate with it. So this tank is backing up toward us. It's absolutely terrifying. Rounds are still coming in. The smoke screens dissipating at this point. And, um, the guy, long story short, the guy on our stretcher falls off and I'm able to grab him and roll him out of the way of the tank just as it was about to crush him. And I actually had to make the decision to leave the guy behind. Now I know that that's, that's very, you know, it's sort of a controversial thing, but it's one of those deals where it was like the tank was backing up. We couldn't, we couldn't tell it to stop. And the tank moved. I don't even know. It, it, the tank ended up missing the guy by about, by about the width of a hand. Had I gone out and grabbed this guy, I definitely would have taken a bullet to the side of the head, especially if I was trying to drag him back. And then if the tank opened fire, that would have knocked me unconscious and I'd have been, I'd have been dead. So it was, it, was a, it was a split second decision I made where I was like, I, I looked at the guy and he was looking back up at me like, hey, are you going to save me? And I was like, you know, sorry, bro. You know, it's sort of what I was thinking. I was like, if I go out there and get shot too, like that doesn't, help. I can't, I can't save you. I, I cannot save you, unfortunately. Um, it just, it was a t- terrible situation to be in, but I stepped back behind the tank, sort of in shock of what had just happened. And then immediately got my legs taken out from under me. Um, cause we got hit from the flank and a, and a round tore through my right calf and just, yeah, sent me straight to the ground. And when I went to the ground, I, I knew I knew I had been shot immediately. There was no like, oh, I just fell over. You know, it was I knew I knew exactly what had happened. And I was sort of sitting there in shock, like looking at my leg, looking at it, hoping and, and trying to figure out if my calf had snapped or not. I didn't know um, because I felt the searing pain, but I didn't know if my leg was still intact. And I was just looking at it. And then the guy started screaming at me and I, and I, and if you, there's a video clip of this as well, I turn around and I, I look and I can see this tank about to crush all of us. And this thing's three feet away, backing up. No, it's not stopping. And so I had no choice, but to pop back up and keep moving and hope. And I just hoped that my leg wasn't going to, you know, collapse on me as soon as I stood up. So luckily it didn't. Um, but yeah, then we ended up making it back to uh, back to Iraqi Army lines, and we were able to save um, one man and that little girl. Yeah. And, so, and this was um, your first trip into Iraq after you left the Navy. 
Yeah. Funny thing is I had actually never been to Iraq, um, during my time in the Navy. I had been, I, uh, I did, I did one deployment to PACOM in the, in the Pacific. And then I did one deployment to CENTCOM uh, where I spent some time in Afghanistan and I spent some time in some other countries in the, in the region. I'd never been to Iraq, so, which was kind of, kind of a funny thing. Right after, right after you got shot, did you immediately leave Iraq? I, cause I remember communicating with you, um, I forget exactly when, but, and I think you were like at stateside recovering from your, your wound. Yeah. Well, it took me, it took me, um, well, okay. So that, so that first night I actually got evacuated. Um, they, they, they or that first day they took me to a, a bombed out mosque, uh, right there in Mosul and, um, uh, Iraqi army medic worked on me. And ironically there was, a, there was some Mennonite volunteers who were there, which is kind of funny. And, uh, so they, they helped me out. And then I got loaded up and I was driven back to um, Erbil. And when I got to Erbil, I was taken to a hospital to a, a ward specifically for people shot in the fighting around going on around Mosul. So I was with a bunch of, you know, Peshmerga soldiers who are Kurds. And um, I, even though I was fighting alongside the Iraqi army, um, not fighting, but, you know, working with the Iraqi army. Um, and it took me, I only spent one night in that, in that hospital, which was awful by the way, because there was no staff on during the night. There was no staff there and the power would flicker on and off. And I'm in this room with like 20 other dudes who've been shot. You know, my, my wound is completely minor compared to theirs, right? Mine is just a flesh wound, just, you know, blew out one side of my calf, which the, 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 uh, the scar is, is pathetic. looks like somebody stabbed me with a pencil. Um, <laughs> So I, I, you know, I'm there next to all these other guys who've been shot in the hip and stomach and all this other stuff. And they're just sitting there in the middle of the night, just screaming, dude, just screaming bloody murder and weeping and like crying for their moms and stuff like that. It was just, it was horrible. Uh, so I spent all night just hearing that. And, um, I only spent the one night there. And then I spent basically two weeks at the safe house that we had there in Erbil, um, that the free Burma Rangers have there in Erbil because it was just, it was too painful to travel. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't physically do it. Just going to the bathroom or if I, if anytime I didn't have my leg elevated, um, it was, it was excruciating pain because the, the entire calf muscle had like locked up, you know, how like if you don't hydrate enough, you know, your calf will lock up in the middle of the night and you're like, ah, yeah. um, it was like that, but for two weeks straight. And it was just, it would, you know, I, I'd see stars and I get lightheaded because the pain, was, the pain was so bad. And the painkillers they gave me were a joke. So, um, yeah, but then so I spent about two weeks there, and then I flew back to uh, flew back to Wisconsin to uh, to heal up. Yeah. Okay, so it was probably then that I uh, first communicated with you, right? I think. Yeah, it was probably right around that same time. Yeah, okay. when that video came out and all that. Yeah, yeah, I, I forgot who it was, but you know, I guess we have several mutual friends. But somebody had showed showed the video to me. Um, mm -hmm. So. Um, I would like to talk about the Free Burma Rangers because I had known, I'd seen a little bit about them before I saw that video. And mm -hmm. obviously, I think anyone who's willing to go to a war zone or a kind of war torn region and do humanitarian work, uh, I think that's something that's highly commendable and respectable. Um, so, mm -hmm. can we talk about the Free Burma Rangers a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. What do you want to know? <laughs> uh, just, just like, um, you know, what is it? that the free Burma Rangers do. And, and then maybe if we can talk about some of the different things they've done over the years. 
Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So as we said earlier, David Eubank, former uh, SF officer, started Free Burma Rangers. Um, he grew up in Thailand and so had a lot of connections there. And he, he grew up as a, as a missionary's kid in Thailand. And so I think back in the, I think back in like the uh, early 90s, mid, mid 90s, he got out of the army and went over there and started basically doing humanitarian work inside the war zone. He would bring in medicine and, and, and whatever else. And for a few years, you know, he was doing that and meeting up with the different uh, Karen people. That's the ethnic people who live right there on the Thai, in, uh, the in Thai Burma. border. Okay. Yeah, yeah they they live in Burma, but they are the, um, the, the folks who live right along the Thai border there. And so he spent several years helping them. And then I think they officially formed the Free Burma Rangers. And what Free Burma Rangers is now is they essentially train the locals in um, medicine, human rights, abuse reporting, um, and relief. And then they, 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 they take these ranger teams of, of the ethnics there. And then these people go out and do relief in the jungle um, whenever there is a Burma army attack which happens all the time. There was actually multiple attacks have just happened over the last week or so in, in Karen state, which most people have no idea about. Um, but yeah, that's happening. So that's what they do uh, in, in a nutshell. And right. it's, again, and, I'll also say this, it's very, very faith-based. Um, David okay. Eubank is an extremely devout Christian. Um, if you ever get a chance to talk to him, he'll probably pray He'll probably pray right at the beginning of the uh, interview or the talk, and then he'll pray again at the end. It's just, it's what he likes to do. He's very... Very, uh, uh, very, very Christian man. And that's what free Burma Rangers, anybody can be a free Burma Ranger. Like for me, I'm not particularly religious, but, you know, I can join and I, I was able to join and go volunteer and all that stuff. And, and then. And just for people who aren't familiar, Burma is in Southeast Asia and it's a jungle region. Yes. So Burma, otherwise known as Myanmar, is is a country sort of sandwiched in between India and Bangladesh and Thailand in the in the east. And then they have China to the north. And it's sort of this small region that most people don't know about because they've been very – they're very isolationist. Not quite like North Korea, not, not to the same level of isolation, but pretty close. Um, Burma is also called, like I said, Myanmar. The reason I refer to it as Burma and most people refer to it as Burma who know what's going on there refer to it as Burma is because the, the government, which is actually just the military, the military runs the country – the, the military junta that controls the place tried to change the name from Burma to Myanmar and to sort of cover their history. And they, there's a lot of uh, erasing history and changing changing facts that go on over there. Um, so people people in defiance still just call it Burma because of that. Yeah, I see. I see. Mm-hmm. And um, so this this whole issue with the, the military uh, running the country, basically, uh, this has been happening for a long time. The war in Burma, what's been going on there, has been going on for sixty-nine years. They're about to wow. hit seventy years here, in I think January or February. It's the long, it's the world's longest-running civil war, and most people have no clue about it. This thing has been going on literally since you know uh, a few months after World War II. Wow, it's been going on for the longest time. Yeah, and. Most people don't know about it or they don't pay attention to it. And, and you know, that, that, that can be a bit frustrating because I, I work there now. Um, it can be a bit frustrating when people are like, oh, what's Burma? Like, yeah, like who cares what's going on over there? And, and, and I kind of get where they're coming from because there are so many bad places in the world right now. Um, right. 
you know, point pretty much any place on the continent of Africa, and there's probably some sort of major issue going on there that that needs attention and needs help, right? And there are aid workers there doing what they can. And the same thing goes with a lot of, uh, you know, Southeast Asia. And it's just, there's so many things going on in the world. You're not going to know about all of it. But um, yeah, so that, that's, that in a nutshell, that's what's going on in Burma. And, and the the Burma army, their objective is to push out or control everybody that is not ethnic Burmese and Buddhist. Mm. So if you're a Karen, if you're Shan, if you're Kachin, if you're Taang, if you're Rohingya, they don't want you there. For the most part, like you, you can stay there in Burma, but you just have to understand that you're a second class citizen. Right. You see what I'm saying? And so obviously the ethnic groups are like, that's unacceptable. And then the Burma army goes in and, and will attack villages of people and and murder, murder civilians and rape and, and, and all that, right. um, all your standard evil stuff. And it's been going on for 70 years, man, which That's is just crazy. insane. Blows my mind. Yeah. So, um, so the, Bur- so the free Burma Rangers, uh, you know, they got their start in Burma. Mm-hmm. Now, how did they end up in Iraq, Kurdistan, and then dealing with this, uh, you know, humanitarian crisis that has been created by the emergence of ISIS. So I, I believe what happened was four or five years ago, I'm not sure on the exact timeline, but they were invited to go over to Iraq and teach some basic medical stuff. Now, the reason they were able to do that was because as of like four or five years ago, there was a relative peace that had a relative but uneasy peace that had settled in Burma. There were still bad things happening, but it was just sort of here and there, and it wasn't the sort of the large scale thing that that the Free Burma Rangers are are equipped to sort of deal with, right? So they were able to take guys over to Kurdistan, which is where they were originally um, invited, and do medical training and that sort of thing. So I think they spent like a good year or two, you know, teaching people how to put tourniquets on and, and bringing in some humanitarian aid and, and that sort of stuff, and. At one point, I, I forget, David David told me this story, but at one point, there was basically a shipment of humanitarian supplies that needed to get taken into, I think, East Mosul at the time and taken to this specific unit called the, the 36th Brigade, um, which is part of the 9th Armored Division, an Iraqi army unit. And nobody wanted to take it in or, or something like that. Long story short, David ended up volunteering to say, hey, we'll take it in. We'll We'll get these supplies in there. And so they ended up just kind of driving into the Iraqi countryside with this truck full of supplies, somehow made it through all the checkpoints, and or they actually almost ran into an ISIS position. <laughs> um, but they saw the Iraqi army flags, and they drove over to these guys. And luckily, they didn't get shot up because um, Iraqi army units do not like random vehicles driving up to them right. for car bomb reasons. And so, the, yeah, they ended up successfully, almost miraculously, delivering these supplies and then they just formed a relationship with that unit of Iraqi soldiers and their leader, General Mustafa. And then they just kept on coming back and saying, OK, well, we'll we will bring in more humanitarian supplies, because what was happening is every time you clear a neighborhood in Mosul or anywhere, any of the villages on the outskirts around Mosul and the plains of Nineveh, you know, you have a whole bunch of civilians fleeing and they're just they're picking up everything and running, right. running like all hell, trying to get out of there and not get shot. And so there's this big humanitarian crisis that's caused right there. Now, you also have to make sure that when these people are running out, that there's not an ISIS suicide bomber in the group, which has happened. 
or making sure that there aren't like kids with grenades in their pockets and, and different things like that. And so it takes sort of a special group of people to, to work in that immediately needy humanitarian environment. So for example, you have a group like, let's say Doctors Without Borders, excellent group. They do amazing things, but they actually do have a border. Their border is pretty much anywhere within like a mile of rifle range of actual fighting, right? right. And they do that for, for good reasons and it makes sense because it's just not sustainable for them to be up there in the front. But then you have little groups like Free Burma Rangers who sort of fill that gap and are able to get and reach people that you know larger groups simply are not able to. And so this thing just kind of ended up evolving and Free Burma Rangers ended up getting more and more involved with this Iraqi army unit doing humanitarian stuff. And just with the nature of war, you're going to end up, you know, you're going to end up getting into some gunfights with these guys. And again, that's not the main purpose, but it, it happened. And then I showed up, um, in I think March, March or April. Yeah. March of 2017 over there in Iraq with these guys. And like I said before, maybe a month of sort of doing mostly humanitarian stuff. We had one big fight we got into. Um, and then all of a sudden we were ordered to hit Mosul and it was just two months of just insanity from that point forward, just block to block world war two style Stalingrad, you know, fighting. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was pretty happening. brutal fighting, uh, for, to, to retake Mosul. And I know ISIS, they were pretty dug in and, um, you know, rigging whole buildings to explode and things like that. I know it's pretty nasty fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the fight was insane. I had, um, like I said before, I had, seen some stuff during my time in the Navy and I've been in some good and some good skirmishes during my time. But this was a whole, this was warfare on a whole new level. I mean, we're looking at coalition airstrikes are hitting, are hitting in front of us, sometimes around us, you know, so windows and stuff are getting blown off, you know, blown out of their hinges and glass is shattering everywhere from coalition airstrikes, two buildings over from us. I don't have a clue who's coordinating these airstrikes. I don't have, I don't have a clue. You know, but I'm just we're hearing we're we're close enough to hear the whooshing, the whooshing sound of these of these airstrikes coming in and hitting ISIS positions. And, you know, we're taking cover all the time and ISIS is mortaring us and they're sending in suicide bombers. You know, we had multiple suicide um, vehicles, VBIDs go off, landmines, snipers, machine gunners from all dug in ISIS positions. And they had months and years to really prepare for this. And. Dude, the level of destruction was insane, like craters the size of a building. Like you could take a building, dump it into this crater, and it would fit, you know. We're, right. we're seeing from these huge airstrikes that had come in and um, destruction on a level that I just I, – I couldn't even – I couldn't even fathom. I thought something – I thought that destruction on that level was something that you're only going to see in pictures from like World War II. Yeah. You know, like you're like, oh, all these demolished buildings, like that doesn't happen anymore. Like war is different now. It was – and and we and we as Americans we do fight our wars a little bit differently now. But just the Iraqi army going in there and trying to you know weed out uh, weed out ISIS from Mosul, man, it was it was insane. It was complete complete anarchy. Yeah, yeah. I did a podcast with two former um, Green Berets who had served in Iraq uh, for multiple deployments. Um, they were with uh, I think it was at the time they were in, it was Third Special Forces Group, so they spent a lot of time um, in southern Iraq. Uh, fighting against some of the Iranian-backed militias and stuff like that, like in uh, mm-hmm. Sadr City, stuff like that. So, But they'd also spent time uh, training up and working with the Iraqi Special Operations Forces 
mm-hmm. um, when they stood those guys up and and they've done a, a tremendous job uh, beating ISIS back before they can take Baghdad and then uh, throughout the entire fight against ISIS in Iraq they were in, involved in it and um, one of them had made a comment saying taking back Mosul is going to be like one of the worst uh, fights that we've seen in like you know, maybe possibly 60, 70 years um, mm-hmm. as far as, you know, the, the amount of destruction and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I'd actually seen I forget I forget which news outlet it was, but um, there was some some news outlet that, that had reported that the, there were American army generals, I believe, talking about the level of destruction and what was going on in Mosul. And they said it was the most violent and bloody and costly urban battle that the world had seen since world war ii yeah and from firsthand experience of having been there and and, you know and being in it i can believe it i can believe it just the 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 level of isis massacres that were happening so you know civilians are breaking free and isis just start shooting into the crowd they just start killing everybody you know because like oh you're abandoning the caliphate and you know whatever else and so they just start massacring these people. We start, we're seeing like little kids get shot in the head, like right in front of us. And we're going out there trying to rescue them. And, you know, um, I think on, on the first on the first day in Mosul, on May 4th, this this talks a lot about sort of the, the, the violence of the fighting that we received during the entire time. On that first day, we had, uh, I think, maybe seven or eight guys were up there in the fighting. Um, one of our guys got a bullet through his pocket. Um Another one of our guys, our, our interpreter, was shot in the stomach, and who, he later died uh, about 10 days later. Um, one of our medics, uh, who's actually from Burma, a Karen guy, he got like three or four bullets through his backpack, and one of them bounced off of his grenade. Another guy named Kevin Johnson, who was a former SF guy who had been wounded in Iraq before during the, during the first war, um, he was actually manning a machine gun on a, on a Humvee during the rescue to to go and rescue a little girl who'd been shot in the face and her dad. Um, and he ended up getting peppered with shrapnel multiple times from bullets, ISIS bullets bouncing around inside the turret. Um, he, he counted 11 bullet impacts inside the turret that he was shooting, uh, that he was shooting from. And then also like his, he had like a sunglasses case or something like right over his shoulder or like, um, you know, up on the turret wall and that got a bullet through it. And, you know, so like that, that's the level of fighting that you're dealing with. And then later on, David Eubank ended up getting grazed by a bullet in a, in a, in a point blank shootout with an ISIS guy. I ended up getting shot and it was just, and then also an Iraqi army guy who had volunteered to be our driver, who spoke a little bit of English, he was shot like six or seven times. And, you know, casualties like that and close calls like that and bullets going through your clothes and, and all that stuff, that's usually sort of like a one-off thing, right? You might, most most of my veteran buddies and during my time in, in the Navy, you know, you'd have maybe, oh yeah, that one guy got, you know, hit or, oh yeah, this one guy had like a bullet, you know, come close to him or something like that. But every single dude on the team got hit in one way or another, whether it was shrapnel or bullets or everybody, everybody got hit. And ironically, the only two guys on our team that did not get hit with anything serious were, um, or, you know, super close calls were both guys who had been um, wounded in Iraq before, Uh, you know, American volunteers who had been wounded in Iraq before. So I guess, I guess I'm saying all that because it was, it was just a level of violence and fighting that I had never experienced and I never thought, you know, would really happen in my lifetime that I'd ever really be involved in something like that. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember when I first seen like some images from the uh, Free Burma Rangers uh, online in Iraq. And I remember seeing like a couple, I think it was like at least more than one Asian guy, maybe one or two. And mm-hmm. um, and I'm thinking, what the hell are they doing in Iraq? And then I'm thinking, because I, I, I didn't know anything about it at the time. Um, mm-hmm. But then I see the name Burma. I'm like, oh, maybe the, you know, there's some kind of organization there. Um, mm-hmm. So... Um, so after you you left Iraq, did the Free Burma Rangers continue to stay there, or, or have they since left? Um, they do. They do. They they have a semi permanent um, presence on the ground with like a couple of local guys who sort of make sure that vehicles are taken care of and that you know some humanitarian aid and visas and stuff like that are taken care of. Several guys that are on the ground there, um, and but there, there's not like a constant team of guys that are they're out there constantly doing stuff. Um, right now they're actually, they, they still have their main, um, safe house in Erbil, but now they're sort of doing relief work out into Syria. Most of the fighting is, is, is finished at this point. Right. Um, as far as being, being able to kind of get up there and do the frontline combat medic thing. So most of that's over, uh, if not all of it. Um, it, don't, but don't get me wrong. There still is violence obviously going on in other parts, but, yeah, they go periodically. And actually, I want, I want to talk about something real quick. You you had mentioned the Burmese guys, the guys, the little, the little Asian guys running around. Those guys are Karen. They are um, th- those guys are those are those guys are absolute ninjas. And I mean that like they're 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 so cool. They th- these guys are so highly trained, and they've all they've all spent so much time fighting. They're highly trained medically, and they've all spent so much time fighting and living in the jungle that. You know, Mosul and all that stuff was was a shock to them, but they're just calm and collected and really nice little Karen guys running around saving everybody's life. And we used to always crack a joke, which was mostly true, that we were essentially just a bodyguard service for those guys because they were the real medics. And, you know, and I'm glad you brought them up because most people don't give them any attention because you're like, oh, like, look at the little Asian guy. That's, you know, that's interesting. Well, okay, now what's up with this big white Westerner, right? And <laughs> And it, it, it's very interesting because those guys are really the unsung heroes that make it all happen. That rescue video, um, that all, you know, all that footage that went viral, that was filmed by a Karen guy mm. who we call Monkey. And he was out there. His job was simply to record what was going on, record human rights abuses. And then he ended up obviously capturing the rescue and all that stuff happening. And so all that video footage and stuff that you, if you go to the Free Burma Rangers website, and you look at their pictures and videos and stuff like that. Most of that is shot. Most of that stuff is shot by Karen guys. And so they, they really are these these unsung heroes who leave their own families and stuff who are at war and go to a place where it's even more violent to help, you know, help these other people. And so it's 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 a really it's a really, really cool dynamic. And then as soon as those guys leave Iraq, they go right back into the jungle um, I was actually just recently in 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 Burma with um, I, I now work for the the Nazarene Fund, um, and I was just in there recently, and I saw I saw all these guys. I was like, hey, what's up, man? Like, you know, you know, they speak very broken English, but we're sitting there, you know, talking about you know fighting in Iraq together, which is just the most you know bizarre thing, but it's it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool thing that they do. Yeah, I knew right away. You know, once I saw them. Uh, that there, you know, there's a backstory there. Um, so, can we talk about the Nazarene Fund? Yes, absolutely. So, um, 
my my time with Freebirmer Rangers, I just I just went and I volunteered, and that was a um, it was a great experience. And and don't get me wrong, I, I loved every second of it. Um, but I feel like I feel like my skills can be used mostly like in a more in like a war zone capacity, right? And after some of the fighting kind of died down, I I did not intend on going back to Iraq to do you know more humanitarian stuff. I randomly ended up um, not even with Free Burma Rangers, but David got me in contact with some guys who needed some humanitarian help in in another part of Karen State that his guys were not able to help out with. So I, I back in January in February, I, I ended up taking this what what I thought was going to be a three week trip, but I ended up taking like three or four months and going into Burma and helping these guys out and doing humanitarian relief stuff. In, on the ground in there. And I, again, it was just all volunteer. I was completely by myself, except for the, you know, the Korean guys who I was helping out. And the Nazarene fund got in contact with me through a guy named David Lopez, who is a former team guy and also works with operation underground railroad. And he, he and I had randomly been in contact. I don't even know how we met cause we didn't know each other from the teams, but anyway, he ended up, you know, um, saying, Hey, I want you to fly out to Salt Lake city and, and meet some folks. And so I flew out to Salt Lake City to meet um, the guys who started Operation Underground Railroad and the guys who run the Nazarene Fund. And the Nazarene Fund was actually started by Glenn Beck um, to help rescue Christians from ISIS. It was, start, mm. it was only started like three years ago. Okay. And they raised a whole bunch of money and they were able to do a lot of really great stuff. And now they want to expand into other places um, and help other ethnic and religious minorities. And so they, the funny thing is I was hanging out with these guys for about three days and I thought that they just kind of wanted to get to know me a little bit. And actually Jim Caviezel was there, the guy who played the Count of Monte Cristo. Mm. He was there um, getting ready for his role to play Tim Ballard, the guy who started Operation Underground Railroad. Um, he was there getting ready to play that play his role in, in a movie. And so I thought they just kind of wanted to have another team guy out there to you know go to the shooting range and whatever else and kind of help entertain Jim and, and all that. Um, but anyway, long story short, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but I went home and I was like, Oh, that was cool. That was nice of them to, to nice to meet those guys. But they ended up calling me and we're like, Hey, we want to bring you on full time to keep, you know, keep doing your humanitarian stuff in Burma. And so now my job, I'm the East Asia operations manager. And so I'm setting up humanitarian relief stuff, very similar to what free Burma Rangers are doing, um, inside, inside Burma and helping the Karen and all that. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's pretty awesome. Um, so do you spend time kind of back and forth between the States and Burma now? I do. Actually, on Tuesday, um, here, here in a few days, I'm actually flying out to, to Thailand to go meet up with my guys there. I'll be on the ground for probably yeah, three or four weeks. I spend a lot of time going back and forth between the two. Yeah. And, and, I, and I absolutely love working with those guys. They're the, the, the Karen the guys. And the, the, the work there is needed. Um, like I was saying, there's been a whole bunch of fighting and the Burma army actually just took over like three Karen villages like two weeks ago, you know, pushed like 400 people out of their homes. Um, you know, we're shooting at them and mortaring them and all that. And, you know, nobody knows about it. It doesn't make the news. Nobody, nobody has a clue about it. Um, but that's what the Nazarene fund is there for. We're going to go in and continue helping these, continue helping these folks. Yeah, that's all great work. And um, so, so Burma, so everywhere in Burma is pretty much a jungle. Is that how the entire country is? As far as the, um, 
the topography and all that, I believe most, most of it is very, it is very jungly, right? They have their rainy season right now, for example. So the summers, their rainy season, they just have these huge monsoon rains that come through and the place becomes essentially impassable. Um, you have to walk everywhere in the mud and, and all that. I believe they have some more um, arid highlands kind of in the north, more toward China um, that are not quite jungly. It's too, the elevation is too high uh, to be jungly. But yeah, it's essentially for, for all intents and purposes. When you think of Burma or you think of Myanmar, you can think, okay, yeah, jungle, humid, lots of rain, you know, <laughs> stuff like that for sure. Okay, so I, I would now like to talk about um, the Fireside Journal. Uh, can we talk about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the the Fireside Journal is, is is kind of a pet project that I started um, about about a about a year and a half ago. Sort of right when I was getting out of the Navy, um, I didn't know what I was going to do next. And obviously, the Free Burma Rangers thing, I wanted to go volunteer with them, but that's a, that's a volunteer thing. You're not paid. In fact, you actually have to pay to go, and you know you have to pay for your own you know airfare and and stuff like that. And so I started this thing called the Fireside Journal, which I thought would be a really cool way to kind of document humanitarian stuff that was going on around the world. And I was, I, I posted a little bit when I was in Iraq on our Instagram and on our Facebook page. And, you know, I actually got a lot of really great response from stuff because I would, you know, the day of, so if you actually, if you go to our Facebook page or our Instagram and you go back to like May 4th and 5th and 6th and those time frames, you'll see actual photos that I took of my time there and like a quick you know, one or two minute story of this wounded person or of what's happening in the picture. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. Now, after I got hit, that very much, you know, took a back seat and it was a very much, um, I didn't really do it, do much with it for, you know, several months. Um, but then when I started working with the Nazarene fund, I realized, you know, they were having some issues with some fundraising and kind of, and, and getting messages out to, to their people and people, you know, th there's a lot of what is Burma, you know, what, what is going on over there? And, but that, that's, that's going on around the rest of the world. There's, there's all kinds of crazy things going on. So the Fireside Journal is, it's a free online, it's, I, I decided to make it into a free online magazine focused on frontline humanitarian things around the world. So we have articles in there about, um, you know, gunfights going on in Burma and the Burma army attacking the, the Karen trying to, you know, hold, hold, hold the line of the Burma road. There's stories, um, firsthand accounts of people who survived ISIS. Um, our friend, Justin Charters, he, yeah. uh, you know, he wrote an article about that and we've got stuff from Africa and this next issue is going to have um, a story about, um, kids and young men in Yemen and sort of how they're getting pulled into this into this war and the child soldiers and things like that. So it's, 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 uh, it's humanitarian based and talking about humanitarian things that are going on, but not just like, Hey, such and such an organization gave out, you know, a thousand water bottles today. Like that, that's not the kind of stuff we talk about. We talk right. about, Hey man, like here's where the fighting's going on. Hey, check this out. Here's what the free Burma Rangers are doing right now. Hey, check this out. Here's what the Nazarene fund has got going on in Iraq and they just rescued so-and-so. And these are the kind of, stories that we're telling. I, I like to think of it as it's, it's like a humanitarian version of, of, of vice. Um, it's kind of what I like to self brand myself as when I, when I try to explain it to people. So right now we just started off as a, as a magazine, it's an online magazine. So you just click on a link and then this, you know, reader pops up on your screen and you can read through and there's incredible photography in there and incredible stories. And, um, we eventually like to get into, um, you know, doing short documentaries and stuff like that as well, but that's a little bit farther down the road. 
but yeah, we just started, we just started this a few months ago or about or last month. And it's been, uh, it's been incredible. Yeah. The response has been incredible, incredible from people. People are, people absolutely love it. So, um, yeah, fireside, the fireside journal on Facebook, Instagram, and, um, online at, uh, the fireside journal.com. And you can subscribe to it as well. Again, it's free. We're not, we're not trying to sell anybody anything. It's, we're just trying to get the information out there and you can sign up with your email and then get it once a month when it comes out. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, sort of it's pretty awesome. Project. Yeah. And, uh, Justin Charters, he's a good friend of mine and he, um, me and him actually bounce ideas off each other. Um, he has, oh, a lot nice. of, yeah, he has a lot of great contacts. Um, and then once in a while he might send someone my way and vice versa. Um, if he needs mm -hmm. like something for an article or whatever. Um, so he's a really good, Absolutely. really good journalist. Um, and, and what you guys are doing is honestly incredible. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I myself look to keep up with it and, and, um, continue to, to follow you guys on your journey there. Awesome. Um, so I would like to talk about, um, the city of death, um, your upcoming book, uh, mm -hmm. and, and it's a book that's been written, uh, by Scott McEwing, who is the author of, uh, American Sniper. Um, you know, a, a lot of people know that. Um, mm -hmm. can we talk about some of that or whatever you yeah. can talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I can, I can talk everything about it. Um, so when I got back from Iraq, I, I, I enjoy the art of writing. So even when I was in high school, I would like read books on how do you, how do you write a book? How do you write an entertaining story? You know? Um, so I was, was kind of a nerd in that, in that sense, it was something I always found fascinating. And when I got back from Iraq, I was, you know, I was dealing kind of with, I wouldn't, I don't call it PTSD, right? It's not a disorder. It's just PTS. Like you, you have all this crazy stuff happens and you have this stressors and it, and it takes time for you to kind of recuperate and get back into normal society and all that, you know, that's completely normal. It's not a disorder. And so when I got back from Iraq, you know, I, I literally, you know, 14 days earlier had been, you know, literally tripping over the bodies of dead children as I was running from ISIS machine gun and mortar fire with, you know, two bullet holes in my leg, you know, and my ears ringing and malnourished and all that stuff. Right. And so I needed, I needed to deal with all that. And so I started writing, I just started writing it all down. I was like, what I just saw and what I, what just happened is so incredible. It needs to be, it needs to be written. And so I wrote it down. I started writing a few chapters of things. And then I realized I was like, I should, I should turn this into a book. Like this, this has the potential to be a book. And I'd had the idea actually during the May 4th and 5th and 6th invasion, you know, several months prior. And I was like, what well, I'm witnessing history right now. People need to know about this. And so long story short, I actually put together a book proposal and then I was able to get in contact with, with Scott McEwen, like you said, the guy who wrote American Sniper with Chris Kyle. And I was actually, I wasn't even trying to pitch the book to him. That wasn't in my, in my head at all. My, my, my thought was, I don't want a co-author. I want to write this book myself. I was just curious if he could give me any tips or any, you know, man to man advice. And so I sent him the book proposal and, uh, the next day I had gotten back from a breakfast with some family of mine and he had called me, texted me, sent me an email and left me a message on my phone. And, and I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And I was actually in Wyoming at the time. And so I, you know, I listened to the messages and he was like, Hey, like this sounds really interesting. Let's talk about it. And I was in Wyoming getting in my car, literally about to drive to San Diego. And so I got on the phone with him and I was like, Hey, I'm in Wyoming. I'm driving to San Diego. Um, I don't know if I can meet up with you. I don't know where you live. And he's like, Oh, I live in San Diego. So I was like, sweet. So I ended up meeting him a couple of days later. 
I wasn't too hot on the idea of trying to do like the co-author thing. I, I didn't want this to turn into like another, you know, another seal book, right? Because there's plenty of those out there. And they're, and, they're, and they're excellent works and stuff like that. I just, I was like, my story's different. And I didn't want it to, you know, I didn't want it to come across as like, oh, I'm this super, super badass operator because I'm not. I was average on my, on my good days um, as an operator. But um, we ended up talking some more. And then, yeah, we ended up, we ended up uh, signing a deal and, and going with it. And so the book ended up being entitled City of Death. And then the subtitle is Humanitarian Warriors and the Battle of Mosul. And it's the story of uh, – I talk a little bit about my time in the teams, a little bit more detail, um, but not much. It's like the first two chapters I mention it. And then I go right into my journey like going into Iraq and this sort of 90-day whirlwind of insanity that I sort of got dropped into and then all the way up into the point where I end up you know, getting shot on camera. And the book ended up turning out way better than we, than we thought it would. Um, I actually, so Scott, so Scott's the co-author and I actually ended up writing the, the majority of it because Scott was, I, I started writing and stuff and my, my, my style and, and everything was, was good. And so Scott was instrumental in saying, okay, look, now write about this. Now make sure you expound on this, make sure you talk about this. And he was, you know, instrumental in helping me form kind of the story arc and making sure that it was as good, you know, final product. And so it was, it was great working with him and seeing him write and some of the stuff he wrote in there, which is, it was great stuff. So, um, we've been doing, we've been working on that for the last six or seven months and October 23rd, the book is releasing at all the major bookstores and, uh, and online. It, it's already available for pre-order right now on Amazon. And, um, it's, it's, it's been absolutely incredible. They're already talking about making it into a movie just from different people who've seen it. Um, and the industry have you know sort of read the early release copy of it, and it's 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 been it's it's been unbelievable. It's not what not what I expected. Yeah, it's it's funny because um, I know a couple of guys who were in uh, different branches, and some people were kind of interested in maybe putting out a book, um, but looking for a different angle because obviously there's you know 17 years of war, 18 years of war. Um, there's a lot of stories to tell and a lot of stories have been told. Um, mm. So we're kind of looking for a different angle, found what we thought would be a good niche. Um, you know, the, the people who would potentially be involved are all guys who, you know, multiple combat deployments and different units, different levels. Um, so I thought it was a great idea. So I, it's funny because I, I hit up Scott on Facebook and, uh, you know, we're chatting a little bit and I'm like, hey, so, you know, I, I, I kind of pitch him the idea a little bit. And he's like, oh, you know, that sounds really interesting, but I'm I'm pretty busy at the moment because I'm writing two books. So I'm like, oh, what are you what are you writing? And I believe he put out a a, a, a separate book already um, or, mm -hmm. or recently. And then he Camp said, Valor. right, yeah. right. And then he goes, oh, and I'm writing a book with uh, Ephraim Matos. I'm like, oh, no shit. Like, what a small world, you know? Mm -hmm. Um so I just I just thought that was interesting because um, I talked to you, you know, a couple of months back and then mm. I talked, I just hit him up for something completely different and then your name kind of popped up again. I just thought that was funny. Yeah, it, it definitely is a small world. Uh, and again, like I feel I'm, I'm so, I'm so lucky and I don't take it for granted, you know, being able to work with Scott McEwen on this. It's just, it's, it's been unbelievable. It's been a really cool experience to, to kind of grow as a writer because I've I've always been interested in doing that, and 
you, you know, to, to have him help me tell my story um, in such a in such a good way. That the the book is written very unique, um, and I'm not just saying that just to promote it, but it really is. It's not written like your normal, you know, sort of memoir. It's written very different. It's so it's almost written like a novel. Um, and just, just, just the way it turned out and everything, it just couldn't be better. And I, I, I was so stoked to be able to work with Scott McEwen and I, I don't take any of that lightly or for granted. And I just sort of, I, I feel like I, uh, I feel like I won the, I feel like I won the lottery or something, <laughs> you know? Oh no, um, he's a, he's an excellent writer and, um, yeah. you know, he knows his stuff. I mean, he, uh, you know, he co-authored American Sniper with Chris Kyle and obviously that was a, a huge success. Mm-hmm. Um, which eventually led to a movie, which is another huge success. Um, so he's definitely a uh, a man with experience in that world, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it was it was great too because when when I met him uh, again, I wasn't super hot on the idea of doing like a, a co authorship or anything like that. I was still in my mind, I was like, I, w- I want to write my own book. I want to write my own story, you know. And I didn't think it was. I didn't plan on it ever becoming as big as it is now. Um, and what, actually, when I met up with him, I told him I was like. Hey Scott, like I I know American Sniper is great and that's awesome and you guys made a lot of money and it was a good movie and whatever else. I'm like that, that's super great, man. I, I really think that's great. I was like, I'm not trying to write that kind of book. Like this is not a war memoir of me being like, oh, here's my time in the teams and whatever else. Because honestly, there's not enough material there to write a book about my time in the teams and everything like that. I, I hardly did anything. And I told him I was like, I'm not trying to write another SEAL book. And he was like, it, it, what I loved about it, he was like. He's like, I know, dude. He's like, that's what I got from your, like, that's what I got from your book proposal. He's like, and I love it. I'm not trying to write another seal book. He's like, this is, this is a totally different story. This is on a totally different level of, uh, or totally different genre rather of, of, of book. Um, and so, but, but there are, you know, there are similar themes, right? You got this seal and I was also a sniper and, um, it's, it's actually funny. I've looked at some of the comments on that rescue video and I've seen several times people have like looked at me and they'd be like, Hey, that guy looks like, that guy looks like Chris Kyle. So, so I think it's, yeah, I think it's kind of funny. Um, but yeah, so it's been this whirlwind of, of, uh, really, really, of a really, really great opportunity to, to tell the story. And, you know, I, I, I was speaking with Scott one day and I was trying to explain to him why I wanted to write this book. I was like, this isn't about me. This isn't about me trying to make myself look awesome. And, and if you read the book, you'll see I, it, it's not me sitting there trying to sound like I'm awesome. You know, I, I talk in the book about breaking down and weeping in, in front of my team, you know, looking at this, you know, this girl who's been shot in the face. And I talk about losing my composure. And I talk about, I talk about all the fears and insecurities and messing up and almost letting one of my patients, one of my first patients die because I was an idiot. You know, I talk about all that stuff in there. And this is not me trying to show myself as a hero. Anyway, so I told him, I was like, I was trying to explain to him why my mindset is the way it is. And And what I told him was on the day of the rescue, on the day that we went and did this rescue of that little girl, something happened that most people don't know about, but it haunts me and it sticks with me every single day. And the day before the rescue, we had come across a, a man who was absolutely livid and weeping and he collapsed in front of us when he saw, you know, a bunch of big, you know, white Westerner dudes. Um, you know, he clearly knew that he was safe and he just started weeping and just like literally just collapsed in front of us and was screaming and telling us how ISIS had killed his family and how they had shot his daughters right in front of him. And he had told us about this. He's like, I remember him specifically saying one of my daughter's heads was shot off by ISIS. And 
And I was like, well, bullets, unless it's like a 50 cal, isn't going to take somebody's head off. But I was like, well, maybe something got lost in translation. I didn't think too much of it. The next day was when the rescue happened. And when we got out there, we saw two girls lying next to each other, maybe 11 or 12 years old, lying next to each other. And one of the girls had been shot in the back of the head and her entire face from her, from her forehead to her jaw was gone. It was just a black hole where her face had been. And the, you know, the blood had turned black and flies were swarming it. And it was, it was so evil and terrible and awful. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's, that's his, those are his daughters. It fit the description perfectly. It's like her face, her face got shot off, not her head. And so when I was writing the book, you know, there's, there's this temptation, especially when like Scott got involved and they start talking about a movie and other things, there's this temptation to be like, Oh, I'm awesome. Look at all this great things that might happen for me. There's that temptation, right. To, to kind of think you're better than you are. But what I decided and what I thought about was, I was like, no, I'm writing this book for that little girl, that girl, that, that faceless girl lying dead on the street in Mosul. That's who I'm writing this book for. I'll never know her name. I'll never know her story. And she represents the thousands and tens of thousands who died, the nameless victims who died because of ISIS. And I was like, that's who I'm writing this book for. That's, that's what's going to keep me on the straight and narrow. And I was also worried too, you know, about like backlash from like, you know, the team guy community. Cause a lot of guys get really upset when, the, when a new seal book comes out. And I used to be one of those guys and I, and I, and I understand where they're coming from because, you know, there's certain seal secrets that don't need to be talked about. There's certain stuff that just doesn't need to be talked about. It's like, Hey dude, shut your mouth. You did your job, you know, go home and, and live in peace. And so I was worried, a big thing I was worried about was like, well, maybe what are guys going to think if I write this book and, you know, whatever else. But then I just kept myself sort of on the straight and narrow and remembered I'm doing this for that faceless girl, that girl who was murdered in front of her family trying to get to safety. Fifty, She was maybe 50 yards from the wall that would have saved her life. And she was murdered in cold blood. And so – Anyway, I, I explained that to Scott. I was like, Scott, that's who I'm writing this book for, this little girl who will never be able to read it. And he was like, awesome. He's like, that's great. He's like, and that's why this thing is different, and that's why I want to do this book. And um, so long story short, it's just been an incredible time working with Scott and um, just just making this whole thing happen. So I'm, I'm excited to, to, to see what – I'm excited for the book to, to help some folks and um, – the, the, the reviews that we've gotten from a, the few people who've read it, I've actually had some, a uh, few like military guys read it. And the, the thing, <laughs> the, the one, the one thing I always get back from guys is they were like, it made me cry. Is what a lot of these guys said, like this thing, this book made me cry because you know, the stuff that's in there and it's, uh, it, it I don't want to say it's a powerful book cause that's not my place to say, but that's what other people have said. And they've, and they've thoroughly, it's thoroughly helped them and they've enjoyed it. And, um, so I, I look forward to more of those stories coming out, um, from people and helping people. Yeah. I can't wait to read it. Um, you know, it, all that stuff is really incredible as far as, um, getting into a place like that and, and being able to help people. Um, because what ISIS is doing is really, it really is terrible. You know, you you see some of that in the news and they say, you know, these guys are evil and whatnot, but uh, it really is bad. And um, 
you know, having uh, known people who are, who are there and people who spend a lot of time there um, in the military, outside of the military, uh, you know, all the stories that come out of there are basically that these guys are literally just evil people. And, um, you know, if you do any research into uh, some of their beliefs and the ideological uh, motivations that they have, um, you know, it, it all sounds pretty uh kind of wacky, you know, but, um, mm-hmm. but regardless of that, you know, they are, are motivated, uh, skilled and a lot of, you know, contrary to what people think, a lot of their leadership is very smart and very educated. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them have, you know, like doctor, doctor degrees and, uh, yep. I think one yeah, of a lot of them were educated in the West and in yep. Europe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They come over here and get education learn whatever they need to about chemistry and radio waves and whatever else. And then they go back back, and build bombs out of that, you know, use that information to to build bombs. Yeah, absolutely. We we saw when we were in Mosul, I I couldn't believe this when I saw it, they literally had made factories from scratch and they were making their own RPG launcher tubes and their own RPG rockets. They were making their own ammunition. Like they had, you know, they were, you know, um, you know, mold, uh, melting down the metal and putting it into the mold and making sure that the explosives were in there. And they, they were making these things from scratch. Like ISIS had their own factories, like set up in like basements of houses in Mosul. And these guys, these guys are incredibly skilled, incredibly, yeah. incredibly capable. Um, I don't need, yeah, they were, at one point they were using drones. They were using, you know, the quadcopter right. drones that are popular nowadays. They were attaching mortars to those and dropping them directly yeah. into you know, open into the turrets of Humvees. They'd fly over the Humvee and then just drop the mortar and it would just kill a bunch of people. They'd drop them into crowds of people. And it was, it was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, these guys are incredibly skilled. And it's not, it's not a bunch of ragtag, uneducated idiots that are running around out there doing this stuff, like you were saying. That, that's, that's what people like to say, like, oh, these guys are uneducated and they're poor. And they're, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Half right. these guys have lived in the West. They know what they're doing. And... They're they're not uneducated. They've seen world history. They know what they're doing, um, and they still choose to go over there and 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 do that evil stuff for one reason or another. You know, right? And it's you know ISIS has been you know highly sophisticated uh, even when it comes to things like funding and and financing and stuff like that. And um, you know I, I think it's obviously a good thing that they've been mostly pushed out of Iraq. I think, and they're probably kind of at the end in Syria as well. But, um, yeah, in, in theory, but they're, they're still there, man. They're still, it's under like a different name. And the, a lot well, of those, that's guys the problem, still, you know, right. It's, it's so bad, man. <laughs> right. It's, it's like, yeah. you know, once Al Qaeda is gone, then ISIS is there. And then once mm-hmm. ISIS is gone, the next group kind of pops up. So yeah, exactly. Um, and it's all the same guys, same ideology doing the same stuff. Right. It's, it's yeah, it's, right. it's like it's like a virus that adapts to, you know, that adapts to its environment. It's exactly what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why it's, um, you know, people, some people who aren't very um, kind of read into it, just look at it. Oh, it's just an issue in, in the Middle East and maybe some parts of Africa, but it really is a global problem. One hundred percent. Because it's an idea versus just a group that once the group is defeated, then it's over. But no, and you know, in this case, they kind of pop up under a different banner. But um, mm-hmm. so if um, if anyone you know listening to the show wants to keep up with you, where's the best place to do that on on all the the Fireside Journal uh, 
social media handles and website? I have, um, yeah, if they'd like to follow the Fireside Journal, they can go follow all that stuff. That That isn't, um, I don't interject so much my personal story into that, um, but if they'd like to follow along with the book and, and, and other things like that, they can uh, go to um, my, they can go to Twitter. I'm on Twitter, Ephraim Matos. I'm on Instagram, Ephraim Matos. And I'll actually be setting up a Facebook page for myself here soon as well. I'm, I'm behind the times with that. Um, so if they want to follow along with me, they can go to those places. And if they want to follow along with Fireside Journal, they can go to Fireside Journal at Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or online. Awesome. And and so your book, uh, The City of Death, is available for pre-order on Amazon. And what's the release date again? I know you said it before. It was October? Uh, October 23rd is when the book is coming out. And it's for pre-sale right now on, on Amazon and uh, Barnes & Noble books and, and all that stuff. It's it's There's not just Amazon there. It's all over the internet. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's available for, available for pre, pre-order now. You can also pre-order the Kindle book, which will be delivered directly on October 23rd. And, um, and then the other books will be shipped out on October 23rd. Nice. Yeah. I, you know, I, I used to read all my books like uh, hardcover or softcover, but mm-hmm. I've switched to kind of digital and, um, I enjoy most you of You kind of have books. to nowadays. Yeah. It's just easy, you know, <laughs> yeah. like I could, yeah. I could read them on my phone or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. so you know, definitely looking forward to that. Uh, Ephraim, I want to thank you for taking out the time and doing this. And then, you know, all the great work that you've done, you know, as a SEAL and then uh, everything you've been doing on a humanitarian side in Iraq and, and Burma. It's really incredible. You know, just again, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.